Yeah, it's now my extreme pleasure to introduce this evening's distinguished speaker, Professor Barbara Stolberg-Rillinger from Münster University. To many of you, she does not need, really need an introduction. As I said at the beginning, she's probably the best-known German professor of early modern history. In the Anglophone world, too, her works are widely received with great interest. And one of her most recent uh, and interesting uh, books uh, has uh, also been translated and published in English earlier this year, and I think it's in the showcase out there, uh, under the title The Emperor's Old Clothes, Constitutional History and the Symbolic Language of the Holy Roman Empire. It's a very elegantly written book which questions an, as she sees it, anachronistic understanding of the Holy Roman Empire as a state, which is a big debate uh, going on, as a state built on a series of legally binding regulations and its constitution. Barbara Stolberg-Rillinger rather sees the empire uh, as being hold, held together by the fact that the constitution was in played out by rituals that the relevant people took part and publicly performed certain symbolic acts. And uh, Barbara Stolberg-Rillinger analyzed these mechanisms uh, wonderfully by examining, by examining the performative languages and symbolic comp uh, communications of the imperial diets, uh, uh, of several imperial diets and the election and coronation procedures of uh, Emperor Joseph II in 1764. By looking closely at what happened at these events, she traces the fading meaning of the German Empire symbolic language. Uh, if this strange body politic was primarily held together by rituals and the symbolic language of imperial authority, then it ceased to have a meaningful existence once this symbolic language was no longer understood. And uh, that is exactly what happened in the course of the early modern uh, period. Uh, I, my favorite uh, description really is, is at the end when um, Emperor Joseph and his at his coronation sat in the hall in Frankfurt at his table and the room should have been full of uh, the princes electors and also the other princes but they couldn't agree on the rank so he sat at one end and exactly the three spiritual electors sat at the other end and it, all the tables were wonderfully laid out and people served but there was no one sitting there so the, there were four people in a large room and the room the rest of the uh, uh, persona which, who should have been there were empty I think that is a, a wonderful symbol that something must have gone wrong uh, in that uh, uh, context yeah, and the title of the book, uh, The Emperor's Old Clothes, really elegant com elegantly combines Anderson's tales of the Emperor's new clothes and Hegel's critique of the German Empire, where the Emperor's, uh, Emperor's fictitiously wore Charlemagne's imperial insignia as well as his clothes at their coronations and mistook these symbols for the constitution of the Reich, which in fact had long vanished. This is, as I said, a rich and subtle analysis which gives testimony to Barbara Stolberg-Grillinger's intimate knowledge and superb uh, ability to tell uh, the story of the Reich, its constitutional framework, and in particular its symbolic and performative dimensions through political rituals. Having started her academic career with a PhD thesis on the state as a machine, the political metaphors of the early modern princely state, that's my translation, 
die politische Metaphorik des absoluten Fürstenstaats, and the habilitation on the concept of political representation in the territorial estates during the final phase of the Holy Roman Empire, she became increasingly interested in the various social and political functions of symbolic communication during the early modern period. And after having been appointed uh, to the chair of early modern history at Münster University in 1997, she became a member of a research training group, a graduierten colleague funded by the German Research Foundation on symbolic communication, and in 2000, member of a Münster collaborative research center and Sonderforschungsbereich on symbolic communication and social value systems from the Middle Ages to the French Revolution. In 2007, she coordinated Münster University's application for a large research cluster within the uh, excellent framework of the German Excellenz Initiative, and that was uh, successful, and it's uh, on religion and politics in pre-modern and modern uh, cultures. It comprises now about 200 academics and uh, about 20 disciplines. It's a huge research cluster. Finally, she uh, just recently coordinated another successful initiative for a new collaborative research center funded again by the German Research Foundation on cultures of decision-making. And this is also the context from which this evening's uh, topic is taken. On top of her impressive skills in academic coordination and her demonstration of academic leadership, Barbara Stolberg-Grilling has been a prolific author with a long list of monographs, edited volumes, and scholarly articles. I just picked out one. And she has received an honorary doctorate from the University of Lyon in 2007, and particularly in 2005, the prestigious Georg Wilhelm Leibniz Prize of the German Research Foundation, the highest academic award in Germany. We have two of those prize winners in this room this evening. She is a member of the uh, Lutz Raphael. <laughs> she is a member of the Berlin uh, Brandenburg Academy of Science and the National Academy of Science Leopoldina, as well as corresponding member of Göttingen and Bavarian Academies. And at present, she is a fellow at the Wissenschaftskolleg in Berlin, which is also uh, quite a distinction and honour. We are very happy that you have accepted our invitation, Barbara Stolberg-Redinger. It even didn't take you very long to decide to take part in our annual ritual. It was simply a short email saying yes. <laughs> I don't know whether that is part of modern culture of decision-making, but we are now very much looking forward to your lecture on exactly this topic, the cultures of decision-making. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. I must say it is not only a pleasure but a real honor for me to take part in this very solemn ritual. And I must admit that I wasn't fully aware of how solemn it really is. So, uh, and I want to congratulate the prize winner. I'm very impressed. So, yeah, When we talk about decision-making, we usually take for granted what that really means. But if you take a closer look, you will find that it is by no means self-evident. So today I want to talk about decision-making itself as a historical object, not about the question of what specific decisions have been made or uh, in, in this or that historical situation or why. 
Historians have always been uh, interested in this kind of questions. But they have always presupposed that it was decided at all. And I want to argue that such such an assumption is by no means self-evident. There is an everyday conviction today that all social action is based normally on decisions and that they are made on the basis of rational consideration normally. My thesis then is that decision-making is not self-evident and that it is indeed not even probable. Rather, whether and to what extent a certain situation is framed, is modeled, is staged, is perceived and interpreted as a decision-making situation is historically variable and culturally dependent. In other words, decision-making has a history. It is, so to speak, a cultural technique that is shaped and managed differently over time. On one hand, deciding is, of course, a fundamental problem of all times that arises from the need to deal with social complexity. And it is a form of social action that plays a unique role for the structure of the social order um, in which it takes place. But on the other hand, it takes different shapes at different times. So in what follows, I will first of all take a step back and define what I actually mean by decision-making and a decision, even that is not as clear as the everyday use of the word might suggest. I will then very briefly visualize various concepts of decision-making by significant metaphors. Second, I will have a short look at modern societies as so-called decision societies. In the third part of my talk, I will turn to a historical example in more detail, namely the royal election uh, in the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. So an example from my specific research uh, field. And in the end, I will conclude my talk in six theses. When I talk of decision-making, I do not mean the internal, the mental, purely mental event, but rather a form of social action. The inner act of deciding is not observable. So I would like to leave this to the psychologists. As a historian, I'm interested in decision-making as a communicative phenomenon, and primarily but not exclusively as a collective action. By decision-making, I mean first isolating explicitly certain alternative courses of action from the infinite uh, diffuse ocean, as it were, of the possible action. And second, committing to one of these alternatives also explicitly and acting according to that. A decision in this sense is an incision. It creates a caesura in the course of time. This is also revealed by the etymology of uh, the word decisio, the Latin decisio, uh, which means cut off, the German entscheidung, scheiden, to cut. The decision separates the previous from the thereafter, namely the past, in which there were still several options, from the future, in which one has already committed oneself and now acts according to one of these, uh, one option selected. However, things do not always behave in such a clear-cut way, 
in social reality. The question of whether a social event has been a decision-making process or not is sometimes initially totally open. And it's only retrospectively that the event put, uh, put forward and rationalized as an action of decision-making. So only retrospectively you sometimes you, um, you model an action as a decision-making action. Looking back, we tend to subsequently see deliberate decisions, whereas in the course of action itself, um, there had been no deliberate choice between explicit alternatives at all. We always tend to re-rationalize. The German word, I think, has no uh, uh, English translation, nachrationalisieren. And we tend to narrate decision stories. Now, decisions are by definition contingent, That is, one could always decide, could always have decided otherwise. There is always a final leap from all rational cons uh, deliberations and considerations on the one hand to the decision itself, for otherwise it would not be a decision at all. A decision without alternatives is a contradiction in terms, since if a decision followed inevitably from good grounds, then it would be a deterministic deduction, an automatism, and not a decision. The key point is that contingency makes explicit decision-making risky. For at the moment of deciding itself, the correctness of the decision is never completely guaranteed. The discard discarded options remain as conceivable alternatives in memory because they have been made as explicit. Decisions are for that reason particularly vulnerable to conflict and exposed to a great deal of pressure to justify themselves. The accusation that one should have decided differently is always present. Decision-making is therefore by no means the rule, but the exception. One usually prefers not, not even to embark on it, Deciding is more troublesome, uh, troublesome than not deciding. It creates costs and it involves accountability and responsibility. A decision is also often divisive in social terms. But perhaps before there was a vague consensus, a decision makes dissent visible. The defeated dissenters risk a loss of face. We might therefore talk of the blessings of ambiguity, of the virtues of indecision. So I will return to this point later on uh, when I come to my historic example. Note this point. So explicit decision-making is always challenging. However, experience shows, that, uh, shows us that once a decision has been made, it then, to a certain extent at least, accrues its own rational retrospect rationality retrospectively. An institution that produces formal decisions usually has also certain mechanisms at its disposal to ensure that its decisions appear to have been correct and plausible or even uh, the, only, the only possible decisions. So far for the definition. Now, there are several metaphors, and I want to take up these metaphors in order to make this a bit more 
uh, yeah, il il to illustrate this uh, matter a bit. Um, in our cultural reservoir of, of, of symbols, um, there are several metaphors that illustrate decision-making. And they, they do so in very different ways. You have been looking at one such uh, primal scene, as it were, all the time on the wall, Lukas Kranach, uh, the elder. In paradise, there were no problems of decision-making. A textbook on collective decision, uh, decisions claims. Never having to decide would be, as it were, a paradisiac, aimless state of happiness. But paradise was, as we know, ambivalent. It brought its two inhabitants the very first problem of decision-making. When God, according to Genesis chapter 3, established one single explicit norm, not to eat from the tree of knowledge, the alternative came inevitably into the world with a serpent making the situation an explicit uh, situation of decision-making, making the alternative explicit. And this myth of origin, decision-making, is the act of human freedom itself, as you all know, a freedom also to do the evil. With their bite into the apple, Adam and Eve decided to be able to decide freely in the future, but also to have to do so. Paradise was, so to speak, and this is a quotation from Niklas Luhmann, a pilot project in matters of discernment and freedom of decision. So the fall from grace at the very beginning of history corresponds, we know, to the last judgment at the end of history, also a primal scene of decision-making that presents the act of deciding as a court judgment. It is, though, no, no random act of deciding, but an act of weighing. In Memling's painting, the archangel Michael is holding a pair of scales in his hand. Um, a scale, and the scale, the scale is to weigh souls in the last judgment. So there is another picture which makes it clearer. Um, and the, in, the image of the scales negates, to some extent, the contingency of decision-making. For the scales move of their, their own Accord, simply as a result of the weight of good or evil deeds that the soul uh, of a sinner brings to them. The judgment follows um, without, as it were, without the intervention of the judge. So the same is true for this, for this um, image from the 18th century. Um, a quasi-secularized, rationalistic variant of the scales uh, to weigh souls, the presentation of reason that weighs good and evil against each other. This weighing by reason apparently leaves no room for arbitrariness. Now, there is a significant difference between imagining the process of decision-making as an act of weighing or, for example, as a roll of dice or a stroke of a sword. Again, Kranach, just for illustration. Um, when a decision is made on the basis of throwing a dice or drawing lots, which is not as rare as one might think, there is no relation at all between reasons for the decision and the decision itself. Quite the contrary. 
It is left to blind chance or the hand of God to determine how the decision falls, literally falls, by the dice. In other words, the metaphor of dice or lot emphasizes very dramatically the contingency of decision-making, that is, the fact that things could always uh, have been decided differently. In stark contrast to the scales, the dice accentuates and makes absolute the factor of contingency, which, though, is in principle inherent in all decision-making, as I would say. The matter of the sword stroke is similar. The Gordian knot that Alexander the Great slices with his sword represents a situation in which the complexity of circumstances renders a rational weighing up pointless, but in which nevertheless a decision has to be made. A situation, therefore, in which it is more reasonable to decide even if the decision itself may be irrational than not to act at all. So, and a last, a last story of decision-making, Buridan's ass, which starved itself because it could not decide between two identical haystacks, is another prominent symbol of this. You know, it's better to decide even uh, if it's not rational to decide, even you, if you can't really um, decide rationally. All, as these metaphors and metaphorical stories show, there is a number of ways to deal with the difficult problem of decision-making. At one end of the spectrum, the DICE model, you go on the offensive and emphasize the contingency as such while refraining completely from the weighing of reasons, by adopting techniques, for example, of random decision-making or thorough authoritative arbitrariness. This is what is called decisionism. And at the other extreme, the scale model, you make the contingency of a decision disappear as far as possible, such as through rationalistic programs that claim to generate the only one correct decision quasi-automatically in order to avoid the problems of legitimacy that always goes along with decision-making. So to what extent does decision-making have a historical dimension? My initial hypothesis was that it's by no means self-evident to model and interpret actions as actions of decision-making, precisely because explicit decision-making is always a very difficult issue. To what extent is this subject to historical change? I want to begin with the current situation. We are living today, as the German sociologist Uwe Schiemann has pointed out, in a decision society. This means that our society much more is, in our society, much more is decidable, and at the same time also much more is in need of decision than in all previous societies. Modern organizations, for example, are built completely on decisions. Public authorities, political parties, business companies, and indeed most states are based on formal founding decisions, except England, of course. They reproduce their own structure in the form of decisions, and if they are to be abolished, this has to take place also by a formal decision. Even the most existential situations today, birth and death, have become subject to medical decisions. So I could mention many other uh, situations here to show that today there are much more 
situations marked and modeled as decision uh, situations. On the other hand, the uncertainty of how to decide in a rational way is also growing. Given the unmanageable masses of information we have today, decision options are becoming ever more incalculable. Given the global interweaving of social and political structures, the outcomes of decision-making are becoming ever more unpredictable. In other words, the difficulties of decision-making are constantly growing too. Now, reactions to this are quite different and contradictory, as I think. On the one hand, we trust far-reaching decisions, for example, high-speed financial transactions, to the computer. That is, we, or at least some of us, rely blindly on the rational effects of automated processes as per mathematical algorithms that appear to render human decision-making to some extent superfluous. Politicians like to sell their decisions as having no alternatives, which is, as already stated, a contradiction in terms. In both cases, the contingency of decision-making seems to disappear. See the metaphor of the scales. That means one adheres to the very optimistic belief in the possibility of the one correct decision. On the other hand, though, this almost irrational confidence in human rationality has since been permanently troubled. The classical rational choice model of human action has been thoroughly challenged. People we now know certainly do not decide after weighing up all available information and on the basis of sound reasons, you know, bounded rationality model. Rather, they often decide on the basis of extensive ignorance by and by intuition, and follow certain unspoken heuristics. Sociologists today are increasingly discovering the blessings of indecision and are uh, are singing the praises of routine. Indecisive muddling through has become socially uh, acceptable under the name of incrementalism. Popular counselors on everyday life advise us to sit things out, to wait, to practice inaction and to endure ambiguity. What is more, in some cases, such as in prenatal medicine, for example, the right not to decide can seem to be morally advisable. We can see that we are currently experiencing decision-making in quite contradictory ways. As I've said, these observations make it necessary to take a step back so that we can look at the matter from a greater historical Distance. The question is then if today's society really is a decision society, then how has it become so? And how did people in past societies cope with decision making? When and how was action modeled as decision making action? Or perhaps not? And can we identify different cultures of decision making and how did they change? So to answer this question is, uh, or these questions uh, in an abstract and general way is, is difficult, if not impossible, and would be, I think, tiring in any case. So I can only do this by a concrete example, and I will, in the third part of my talk, um, give you an impression of the early modern culture of decision-making, and I will take an example from my own field of research 
that is uh, the election of the king in the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. What you can study here is a very early and very significant formal process of collective decision-making. For the, the succession of... For the succession... Um, of uh, rule was always, always particularly prone to conflict and therefore clarity was especially important. As you may know, conflicts of succession were the most important and the most frequent causes of war in pre-modern times. Since the late Middle Ages, the right to, of succession to the throne in many European monarchies became more and more formalized in written agreements and determined in advance for all possible cases. The aim was to transform the succession of rule into a quasi-natural automatism and to surround it with an aura of the unattainable. Thomas Hobbes, therefore, called birthright a natural lottery. In other words, the aim was to avoid any decision-making situations. The Salic law, as it was interpreted in France since the 14th century, is probably the most prominent example of this. You will also be familiar with the current British line of succession whose precisely numbered potential pretenders to the throne run into the thousands. Even if such, such rules did not prevent conflicts in any case, the formal norm was that the death of the ruler would trigger quasi-automatically the succession to the throne of the next heir without the intervention of a decision. This was different in the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. Here the king was elected. That means again and again a decision was needed. And that created problems. In the medieval empire, and similar to the papacy, the dominance of the electoral principle had repeatedly led to ambiguity and division in high medieval times. In one place, one person could be king. In a different place, a different person. And in such cases, there was no person and no rule that could, could ultimately decide. Such an ambiguous situation could, on, could only be brought to an end by force of arms, which would then to be considered as God's judgment. Or not at all uh, decided. That means parties would have to accept a state of permanent irresolution. The experience of such crisis caused by, by these double elections, resulted to an agreement on a formalized decision-making procedure fixed in writing, namely the famous Golden Bull of Charles, Charles IV, 1356. And you see the illustration of the, one of the manuscripts from 1400. In the course of time, this Golden Bull acquired the status of an infrangible basic law of the empire and regardless of several changes in detail, maintained a highly binding force until the end of the Holy Roman Empire in 1806. What changes did this early formalization of decision-making bring about? As is well known, the Golden Bull specified the circle of the seven prince electors, their privileges and their ceremonial ranks. It determined place, time and proceedings of election and it established the majority principle. When all prince electors, or the majority of them, have made their choice, so it says, 
then the choice made is to be regarded as if it had been made by all of them unanimously and unopposed. One might say that the Golden Bull subjected the election of the king to the logic of the classical drama, as it were, namely the unity of place, time, characters, and action. This was designed to guarantee, and this is the crucial point, that a decision was made at all. The Golden Bull was to ensure that uh, the process of decision-making would be safely set in motion and then conducted with certainty to a conclusion. As the papal election a century earlier, the introduction to the, uh, of the majority principle and the closure of the electoral body went hand-in-hand hand and presupposed, presupposed each other. One can only practice the majority rule, of course, uh, when the group of participant is, participants is determined. Precisely that characterizes the formal procedures in general, namely that the circle of participants is determined by membership rules and that abstract procedural steps are defined and above all that the participants submit themselves to the decision in advance and irrespective of the result. That was exactly the case with the election of the king in Germany in the early modern period. Each individual elector pledged himself at the beginning of the act of election to submit to the majority decision. At that time, this was extremely unusual. The procedure of, the, of a pre-modern political assembly normally looked completely different. Since far too much was in the way of such a clear and unambiguous decision-making process, the high value of consent, the great weight of rank and honor, and not least the lacking power to force the minority to accept the decision. Compositio, agreement, was much more appropriate under these early modern circumstances than decisio, decision. Unanimity, unanimitas, had a high spiritual value since harmony was a sign of, of course, of divine inspiration, while disharmony was considered the devil's work. But unanimity was also desirable for pragmatic reasons, of course, since dissent could hardly be articulated publicly face to face without personal loss of honor and the threat of an escalation into violence. In addition, the large weight of hierarchical rank clashed badly with the majority principle since votes of different social weight cannot be simply counted. If the major pass, the, major, the greater part, was not identical with the senior pass, the wiser part or the better part, there, there was a problem, of course. In most early modern assemblies, the procedure, therefore, usually ran as follows. To begin with, the possibilities of a consensual decision were sounded out confidentially and informally before the solemn and formal meeting was held. That is also the reason why most assemblies then functioned according to a polling principle, in German called Umfrage, that is, those present were asked for their vote in the order of their rank, and no clear distinction was made between expression of opinion and formal vote. Only when an approximate majority 
opinion or a vague consensus had crystallized from the votes, did the head of the assembly record uh, this as the result. So the assemblies tended to take place in a mode that we can term palaver. The term is meant not, uh, not derogatory, so I, I don't mean this derogatory, palaver. That is, the transitions between, in this mode of palaver, the transitions between deliberation, negotiation, and decision were completely fluid. And whether a decision would ever be made was uncertain and even unlikely. The palaver mode is generally characteristic of situations in which there is a great deal of pressure to achieve harmony, social harmony, a strong need for personal um, face-saving and low chances of enforcing a result that could possibly also be meet dissent. Such a mode of negotiation as it was the rule under pre-modern conditions differs from a formalized process of decision-making as prescribed by the Golden Bull, also insofar, insofar as the participants could opt out again and only submit to the result at the end if it met with their approval or compensation was guaranteed in another matter. In pre-modern assemblies, for example, court diets, imperial diets, uh, provincial diets, estate diets of all kind, that was always a latent risk. For the principle tended to be what concerns everyone has to be agreed by all, the famous quod omnis tangit principle. Quod omnis tangit ab omnibus approbator. This principle also had a downside, however. Namely, those who had not given their approval were also not affected by the result and could simply opt out and deny, uh, in their case, the binding nature of the decision. This explains the tendency to, to keep conflicts in a state of limbo, as it were, to make opposing views coexist with each other, to endure amb ambiguity and indecision. But that need not be irrational at all. Conflicts certainly need not be decided. They can also be frozen, as it were, by hiding the competing positions behind dissimulating formulations so as to overcome such a blockade um, blockage and to be able at least temporarily to continue uh, to cooperate. In certain circumstances, we can uh, live quite well even with an ambiguous reality. Competing interpretations of a situation can often coexist in the long term until they perhaps eventually take care of themselves. So was the case with many lawsuits in the Roman German Empire. They only ended when one of the parties involved died out, one of the families involved died out without any final resolution. Indeed, most of the lawsuits in the uh, uh, highest courts in the Holy Roman Empire uh, had no final resolution, resolution at all. And they were, uh, anyway, very, very uh, effective. The election of the Roman German king was therefore quite unusual compared to most other procedures within the empire. The basic law made sure that a decision would always be made, even against the background of uh, dissent. Now, how did this work in practice, and why? Why did that, that ex exception work? I want to highlight very briefly 
three points here which characterize the culture of decision-making in the Roman uh, German Empire very much, I think. First, the ritual staging of the election that lent it an aura of legitimacy and of secrecy. Second, the informal negotiations in advance that would prepare the decision. And third, the specific value of decision-making for the decision-makers themselves. First, like all social action, decision-making always has a symbolic dimension. An election is never just an instrumental uh, procedure, but always a symbolic and ritual act, too. It serves not only to identify a person for an office, but also to demonstrate the role of the electors and to stage and reaffirm the entire order in which the election takes place, the entire institution in which the election takes place. That was also the case in the election, uh, elections of the king in Germany. It was staged in a time-honored ritual, ritual form as a free and exclusive decision of the prince-electors, and at the same time it was practiced as a divinely inspired and strictly secret event. For the period of the election, the location, mostly Frankfurt am Main, became a special enclosed place. All outsiders, outsiders were excluded, the city gates were locked. In the morning, the electors rode in a solemn procession um, to the church, celebrated a mass to the Holy Spirit to ask for um, his blessing for the election, and swore the prescribed oath to the gospel. Then they were left to themselves in the electoral chapel uh, where the conclave was held. No one but the Holy Spirit should be among them in the end. Identical shells were provided for all, symbolizing that in the electoral act they were, for just this once, equal. The chapel was now the center of a completely secret event which nothing, with nothing penetrating to the outside. Under the protection of secrecy, possible dissent, dissent could be voiced openly without fear of losing honor and losing one's face. As a rule, though, there were, there were no surprises to, uh, to, be expected in the, to be expected in the conclave, since all relevant issues had already been negotiated well in advance. Nevertheless, this act was of essential importance. It staged the election as an act of decision-making by the prince-electors, and indeed all the more effectively since it was completely unobservable to the outside world, which is also true, also true for many other electoral acts in this period. Think of the papal elections uh, up to the present day with the white smoke. It's a very impressive uh, staging. At the end of this central act of complete invisibility, the decision made was then presented as the common unanimous decision of the electoral body as a whole, with then in the end the bells ringing, the cannon, cannons firing, the crowd uh, acclaiming, etc. Second point, as I, I, as I have already uh, indicated, that certainly does not mean that informal negotiation played no role. On the contrary, the ritual staging of a free decision was just one side of the coin. 
The other side was that this de uh, decision usually had been carefully negotiated behind the scenes. Even Charles IV, the emperor who had issued the golden bull, was nevertheless accused of having, uh, having bought, bought the, social, uh, the, the royal election uh, of his son, Wenzel, through gifts of unprecedented value. And the election of Charles V is said to have involved a million uh, gold florins. But these were only extreme excesses of self-evident um, of a self-evident process of negotiation that took place prior to every selection. The commitments of the candidate were in fact formally laid down since 1519 in an electoral capitulation, a commitment. The reigning emperor himself usually took those, these negotiations by having his successor elected king and future emperor in his own lifetime. As is well known, this led de facto to a uh, all the Roman German emperors of the early modern period coming from the uh, dynasty of the Habsburg. But that certainly does not mean that the imperial title had become a birthright of the Habsburg dynasty, nor that the free vote, free vote practiced by the prince electors had become an empty ritual, that they could just have uh, well done without it. The election had quite other functions than simply electing the right candidate. Significant in this context is the fate of an early proposal designed to make the election of the king more rational. In the context of the Basel Church Council in 1433, the young and later very famous theologian Nicolaus of Cusa had already designed an electoral procedure to eliminate the notorious fraud and evil machinations in the royal election and to determine with the greatest possible certainty the best candidate in the Concordantia Catholica. In a written procedure of voting, each voter would compare, order, and score all the candidates together. Which reminds a little bit uh, of the Eurovision Song Contest. The points would be added at the end, and the candidate with the highest number of points would win. However, this sophisticated scoring system was never used. Indeed, it was completely forgotten about for centuries and was only rediscovered, not by chance, in the late 18th century. This lack of success is at first glance quite surprising since the procedure was, as today's mathematicians attest, extremely rational. But on closer inspection, it is no wonder that it did not succeed. Rather, it failed for reasons that are significant, since the learned theologian, Kuz, was victim to a rationalistic misunderstanding, as I would say, when he assumed that the royal election was about achieving a result that was a mathematically as, as mathematically rational as could be. In a certain way, Cousin's optimism regarding the power of rationality made a similar mistake as some theorists on decision-making today. For all his focus on the right result, he overlooked what the decision-making process was otherwise about. Namely, not, or at least not only, about the exact and impartial determination of the optimal candidate for, uh, candidate for the throne. 
the whole sacredly excessive and ritualized election procedure was designed, as I've already said, not only to ensure that a clear and unequivocal decision would be made, that was important, it also demonstrated that the election was in accordance with the free will of the prince electors and no one else, and it highlighted their exclusive right to vote, on which many other privileges, uh, extraordinary privileges of the prince electors uh, depended. That is why this right to vote always had to be demonstratively practiced and affirmed always anew. The election of the king was, together with the subsequent coronation, of course, the virtual keystone that held the whole imperial constitution together. What involved in formalizing what was involved in formalizing the royal election was nothing less than the production and maintenance of the political unity of the empire. This exemplifies the general fact that the formalization of decision making goes to the heart of the political. Our understanding of the political is indeed very much influenced by the concept of decision making. An action is political that is geared towards the production of collectively binding decisions, as a very common definition goes. Political communities or collective subjects emerge and exist precisely through the fact that decisions are collectively attributed and considered as collectively binding. But that is by no means self-evident. Here in the case of the election of the king, the emergence of a clearly defined stable decision-making body of the prince electors was needed for this handful of prince electors to be able to represent the empire as a whole. And this contributed, contributed significantly to the fact that for centuries the empire survived as a political body all the dangers of splittering. So much for my historical example. Some very short uh, conclusions and six theses. What I want, uh, what I wanted to show, can be uh, summarized like this. I think first, decision making should not be taken for granted. Rather, it is a social challenge. Explicit decisions usually require increased legitimation. Second point, under certain circumstances, it may be more sensible not to decide, for example, when there are only limited prospects of enforcing a decision in the face of dissent. From a historical perspective, formalized decision-making has therefore been more the exception than the rule. Much more common were palaver and dilatory muddling through. Third point, Although this may still seem familiar to us today, think of academic councils and so on, it can hardly be denied that there has been a long-term process which has made decision-making increasingly likely. For when there are formalized decision-making procedures, such as prescribed by the Golden Bull, for example, once there are formalized decision-making procedures, then these ensure the decision-making, that decision-making definitely takes place. So in the course of time, more and more issues have become subject to 
explicit decision-making. That means they can be decided, but also have to be decided. Fourth point, however, the historical example shows that more formality also produces more informality. Wherever formal procedures make explicit decisions more expectable, the more the need increases for informal negotiations and secret paths. <coughs> Fifth point, moreover, the historical example shows that such formalized procedures have not only the function of producing rational results. Rather, they usually have many other different functions. Also, to pr the function to pr produce rational results, of course, but also many other functions. For example, decisions often serve to stabilize symbolically the entire institution that produces these decisions. Sixth point, sixth point, what has apparently increased in the modern era, around 1800, is the optimism concerning the human capacity to shape and perfect the world rationally by decisions. And I quote, rational decisions are the last sacred cows of modernity, as Uwe Schiemann has put it. With that, we have maneuvered ourselves into a dilemma. The lower, due to the complexity of the global world, the real prospect of rational decision-making is, the lower it is, the higher also the expectation that rational decision-making is both necessary and possible. And this can only lead to disappointment. So what I wanted to show is that looking at at earlier epochs of decision-making can stop us falling into the self-imposed trap of unfulfillable expectations of rationality. And in this respect, a certain sobriety, a certain detached sobriety can be useful, as I think. Thank you very much. <laughs>